We have one week to live. That's our message series. We started on uh, triumphal entry on that Palm Sunday. We talked about the events that took place in Jesus's life on that Monday. And we're kind of camping out on Tuesday. We're calling it Super Tuesday because the Bible records a plethora of events that happened on that Tuesday. Now, ironically, the Bible doesn't record a single thing on Wednesday on the last week of Jesus's life. What did he do? I don't know. Uh, He did something, but the Bible just doesn't record that. So we're on the last Tuesday. And what I want to do this morning is I want to start at the end of Tuesday and work our way backwards. It's like going to a movie and you're watching the ending, you know, first, and then, then go backwards. Because you know the events that happen at the end of the day. And they all appear to be rather independent, but they're not. The three events at the end of the day are all start from what Jesus does at the beginning of the day. Now, you got to be a smart congregation to follow all this, and you are a very smart congregation, so we can do this, okay? We can, but I need you to follow this. So we're starting at the end of Tuesday, and we're moving our way backwards to what happened on, on Tuesday morning. So at the end of the day, in the middle of the afternoon... Basically, they try to trap Jesus. They're mad at Jesus because of what he said earlier in the day. And so in the afternoon, they come to Jesus and they ask him a political question. They ask him a theological question. And they ask him an ethical question. And all three of these questions are meant to nail Jesus because they're ticked off because of what he said earlier in the day. So late in the afternoon... uh, the Pharisees come to him, and they ask him basically a political question. And they're buttering him up, and they're saying, we know you're a great man. We know you're a great teacher. We know you aren't swayed by men. But by the way, is it legal to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they were trying to trap Jesus. Because if Jesus said, yes, it's legal to pay taxes, and you should pay taxes, then Jesus would lose, lose favor with all the Jewish people. If Jesus said, no, it's not legal, then they would arrest him for treason. And you know this story, right? But usually you read this story, and you don't realize there's a context to it. And so what did Jesus say? Find me a coin, whose inscription's on it. And then Jesus said what? Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God. We know that story. But that happened late on the afternoon of Tuesday. And the reason they tried to trap him is because it's what he said earlier in the day. Also late in the afternoon then, the Sadducees come to him and they ask him a theological question. Now the Sadducees were the only group that did not believe in eternal life. They did not believe that there was life hereafter. The Sadducees didn't believe that there was a resurrection. And so they make up this story And they say, good teacher, there was this woman, and she marries the man, and the the guy dies, and then she marries the brother, and the brother dies, then she marries the next brother, and that brother dies, then she marries the next brother, and that, by this time, if I were one of those brothers, I wouldn't marry this chick, would you? I'd find another woman, right? And so, five brothers, six brothers, all seven brothers die. Jesus, in the resurrection that we don't even believe in, Sadducees, who's going to get her? And Jesus basically says, you are in error. You don't understand this. Uh, You don't know the scriptures. Jesus said, you don't know the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given to marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection, then Jesus nails them. I love this. He nails them. But about the resurrection that you don't even believe in, 
Have you not read what David said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Is he not the God of, he's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. And they were like, oh man, we're ticked off now. We don't know what to do. So then one of the scribes who's a lawyer comes to Jesus with an ethical question. And again, these are three events later in the day because we're trying to trap Jesus because of what he said when? Earlier in the day. So this lawyer comes to him and he says, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Now that seems like a no-win situation because we know that there's 10 commandments, right? Everybody knows the top 10. Moses had the two tablets of stone written on both sides, Mount Sinai. In fact, in this room, how many of you, not that you've kept them, but how many of you could list at least five of those 10 commandments? At least five. Okay. How many of you could list maybe seven of those, t- of those Ten Commandments, right? right not, not that you've kept them, but I'm just saying that you, you could at, you, you at least list them, right? All right, so you know there's ten. Well, there's another 613 commandments in the law. And so this is like, there's no way you can whittle all this down to one. And so the lawyer comes to him, he's a scribe, and he says, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus doesn't bat an eye. He says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by the way, you didn't ask me, but the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy just backed away and goes, we're done. We're we're, we're done. Now, all three of those groups were out to get Jesus because of what Jesus said earlier in the day. And what happened earlier in the day is he's explaining to everyone how you respond to God. And he tells three different parables earlier in the morning, and everybody responds to God in one of three ways. And it's just like this room. You will find yourself in one of these stories. Everybody, everybody in this room responds to God in one of three ways. And so the first parable that Jesus talks about is about a guy who basically has franchised a bunch of vineyards. And so the guy, vineyard owner, has got this big vineyard, but he doesn't live there. He's got a management team over here that's running it. And now it's time for the harvest. And so because the harvest is going to be so plentiful, it's time for a bunch of temporary workers to come and travel and come to that vineyard. And all the management team sees the temps as threats. The profits will not be as good, that we won't get as much credit for it. And so they take clubs and just beat the stew out of the temps. Well, the owner of the vineyard thinks, well, maybe they don't understand, Jesus says. That that, so, so the owner sends the heir. And so the heir comes, and now these, this management team says, you know what? Let's just kill him. Let's kill the heir. If we take the heir out, then we get the whole thing. And so Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do to those wretches? He will take them and send them to their wretched end. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees knew that Jesus was talking about them. Matthew chapter 21, verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this first parable that I just mentioned, they knew that Jesus was talking about them. Now, this is the first way that people respond to God. They just rebel. They just resist. Now, I doubt that there's very many of you in this room that are just adamantly against God. I doubt it, because you wouldn't be here. Now, maybe you lost a bed, or she's cute, or whatever, but you know, so you are here because you're trying to get a date, but, but regardless, um, 
I doubt very many of you in this room are just resistant, but you all know people that are. We all have people in our families that are. We all have people that we work with that just just rebel. They just rebel. They just resist a relationship with God. And you've heard their excuses. They'll say to you, when you invite them to Easter, they'll say to you, well, why, if there was a God, why is there so much pain, evil, and suffering? Isn't the Bible full of all these contradictions? How can Jesus be the only way? All you got to do is be, be sincere. You don't really have to, you know, isn't being sincere good enough? Well, that, that's just so silly, being sincere good enough. It's like, well, I sincerely thought I was taking aspirin. Oops, it was arsenic. That just doesn't make any sense, does it? right? And, and, and so you've heard these excuses, you've heard these people, and, and they're in your life. So again, that's the first way. Probably not very many in this room are that way. Here's the second way people respond to God. Look at this in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus tells this story. Now keep this in mind. <clears throat> he tells this story and the one I just mentioned earlier in the day so that later in the day they come to him with a political question. They come to him with a theological question. They come to him with an ethical question, trying to nail him. So here's the second parable Jesus tells early on Tuesday morning. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. And then he sent some more servants, and he said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened cattle, they've been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, and they mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. And so go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants, they went out into the streets and they gathered all the people they could find. The bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But here's the second way. Here's the second way that people approach God. The first is rebellion. Here's the second. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without any wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. And then the king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, I remember the first time I read that, Well, actually, I don't remember the first time. I was probably in high school. But the first time, I was about 20 years old, and I was in Bible college, and I read that about the wedding clothes. And I thought, God, you're being a little harsh here, aren't you? I mean, the dude may not have had any money. And so he comes to the wedding, and maybe he he just didn't have any wedding clothes. And and, and it, it seemed like a very harsh story to me. Does it you? Is that a little troubling to some of us in this room? And then I began to understand and peel this away. I began to realize that what they would do is royalty 
would provide all the clothes. This is how they would brag and show off how wealthy they were. So a prince or a king would show how great he was. And so all the women coming to this wedding, you get to pick out your wedding dress. Now, would you like that? Would that be cool? Yes? No? Okay. Free dress? How many women would like a free, cool dress? That's what I'm thinking, all right? I'm not real smart, but I got that figured out about women. I've been married 30 years, okay? And the guys, we'd put on a suit or a tux, but not because we wanted to, but because we had to, right? Well, about a year and a half ago, a friend of mine from our church uh, was getting married at Safety Harvest Ball. It's funny. I told this story in first service, and he's actually in the room right now. And so I, he said to me, he said, um, do you have a tux? And I said, well, no, I don't have a tux. And, and, and you know, I haven't worn a tux since I was like, since I got married. And uh, any guys in this room have a tux? All right, I'm about a 40 regular, so if, if, this, if we can work something out. And, and so he, uh, he said, well, I'll rent you one. And so we met, we went to the store, and I got, I'm real ticklish. I can remember that girl, the tape around me, you know, and I'm just jumping. And, and so I got measured for the tux, and, and, and it was cool. It was, I went, went, got it fitted. Now, can you imagine? This friend of mine goes to all this trouble, rents me a tux, meets me at the place. I get measured, get fitted, pick it up. Can you imagine if I show up at his wedding with a T-shirt, board shorts, and flip-flops on? Okay? I, mean, I got some pretty cool board shorts, but can you imagine showing up like that? And, and the point is, I would have dishonored him, wouldn't I? Because he went to all, all this trouble. And, and, and so here's the point, is the king has provided a way for you to come to the wedding. And all this guy had to do was wear the wedding clothes. All he had to do was put them on. The second way that people approach God is just apath- Apathy. This guy was apathetic. Now, there's probably more of you in this room that are a little bit apathetic than you are resistant. Yeah, there's probably a God. Yeah, he's probably good. And I'll go on Easter and, you know, I'll go on Christmas. And, but, but, but apathy really doesn't make any sense. Jesus basically said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? I mean, and also the scriptures are like, I want you to be hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, it's like, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, right? And so let's walk through apathy for just a second. Does it really make sense to be apathetic? I mean, do you, do you think that all this just happened by random chance? Okay, let's take God, put him over here. Let's take the church, put him over here. Let's take the scriptures, put it over here for just a minute. Let's just look at the universe. Let's just talk. Let's leave church and all that. I'm I'm all into all that, but let's leave this over here for just a minute. And let's just talk about the universe. How can you be apathetic when you look even at the universe? Look at this little thing I want to share with you. The complexity of our planet, it points to a deliberate designer who not only created our universe, but who sustains it. I don't have time this morning, but I'm amazed by our planet, how it's so orderly. You look at the size, you know, of the earth. It's just the right size. Go Google all this. 
If the earth were any bigger, we'd be in trouble. If the earth were any smaller, we'd be in trouble. There's all these gases, nitrogen and oxygen, all these gases, and we have to be exactly the right size and the right distance from the sun and the moon for there to be life. You think about our distance is exactly the right distance from the sun. If we were any closer, we'd cook. If we were any further away, we'd freeze. I mean, I mean, even the moon is the exact right size. I can't talk about this today, but it's also the right distance. If the moon were, were any closer and the gravitational poles were higher, our waters would be spilling over into the continents. If we were any further away, our oceans would stagnate because there's not enough movement, and all this plant life and animal life would die in our oceans, and we wouldn't exist. I mean, you, you just look at how the universe is created. Now, I love this quote by this astrophysicist. And an astrophysicist is somebody who just studies the celestial bodies. He's not a Christian, but I love what he says. Astrophysicist Robert Gestaro, a self-described agnostic. Now, agnostic says, I don't know if there's a God, and I don't really care. I'm apathetic. Different than an atheist. An atheist says there is no God. An agnostic says, I don't know, and I don't really care. He says this. The seed of everything that has happened in the universe was planted in that first instant. Every star, every planet, and every living creature in the universe came into being as a result of events that were set in motion in the moment of the cosmic explosion. Now, we would call that God, and we would say God spoke, and there was everything, right? in the days of creation. We would call it ex nihilism. God creates something out of nothing. But even an agnostic is saying it all got started at the same time. The universe flashed into being, and we cannot find out what caused that to happen. Now, we can. I can tell him. But, but my point is, I can, and you can too. But my point is, it all happened at once. And even an agnostic who studies this all his life recognizes there was a big bang. God spoke and it all banged up. That's for sure, didn't it? It all happened. So why be apathetic about your heavenly Father who's created a universe that's so mathematical and so orderly and so reliable? I don't have time this morning, but if you're a little bit apathetic, I'd love to talk about the human brain for about two hours with you. The human brain can process one million messages per second. Now, some of you in the room are a little slower than that. <laughs> so you might only be at 800,000, okay? But that's still pretty darn good, isn't it? And you think about the eye. I'd love to talk about the eye. We have three or four MD eye doctors and several other op optometrists in this church. Do you know the eye can distinguish between 10 million colors at one time? The eye. The eye can distinguish 10 million colors. And your eye is so brilliant that 1.5 million messages can self-focus in your eye simultaneously. Now, again, I suggest you go for it. Why be apathetic about your Heavenly Father and about your relationship with God? 
wouldn't it be better like to be all in than it would be to stick your toe in the shallow end of the pool? I suggest you just go run and jump in. All right, here's number three. So again, there's three ways that people respond to God. Jesus tells these, these stories, and they try to trap him at the end of the day. And so they come to him and say, what about the coin? They come to him, what about the resurrection? They come to him about what's the greatest commandment. And so earlier in the day, he's got, he talks about them. You have resisted. You've rebelled. He talks about them. You have been apathetic. And this third one is probably most of you in the room. Here's the third one. It's a parable about two sons. And everybody in the room is in this parable. We're all in this room. Whether we've accepted or whether we've rejected, find yourself in this parable. Okay? So again, it's now Tuesday morning. He's just told two other stories. Here's the third one. What do you think? I love that when Jesus says that. He's inviting us to engage with him. What do you think? Come think with me. Come reason with me. There was a man who had two sons. And he went to the first, and he said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. Now, what's happened is, I think the vineyard's now ripe. It's now ready. It's now harvest time. They've been preparing the grapes. They've been growing. And now it's time to send them to the wine press, and there's going to be a lot of work to get done. The son's going, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go. It's hot. It's hard. It's the next 30 days of my life. It's not just today. I know how this works with my dad. We're going to be picking grapes for the next 30 30 days. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind, and he went. Jesus says, what do you think? Then the father went to the other son. He said exactly the same thing. Son, the grapes are ready. Son, the vineyard's ready. We need to go harvest these, send them to the wine press. And this son said, I will, Dad. Yes, sir. I'm your, I'm, you can count on me, Dad. But he did not go. And Jesus said, what do the two did what the father wanted? Well, the first they answered. And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, keep in mind you got scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders all around listening to this. you got the ones who think they're in, we're out, and the ones who were out, we're actually going to be in. I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. No wonder they're fired up. No wonder they're trying to trap Jesus in the afternoon. No wonder they bring the coin and say, let's get him for treason. Let's make him a fool about the resurrection. Let's ask an ethical question that nobody can answer. Now, what, 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 what do you think, Jesus? And even after you saw this, he said, you didn't repent. So John came to you to show you the way of righteousness. You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. You mean the prostitutes get to enter the kingdom of God? Are you kidding me? And even after you saw this, Jesus says to the scribes, the Pharisees, you didn't repent and you didn't believe. Wow, what a story. But that's my story. That's your story. Every one of us, let's go before the cross. Even if you're a Christian in this room, how many times did you say no to your heavenly father before you became a Christian? I remember when I was 14, 
My parents just started going to church. Cool, cool event. Dad's 40. I'm 14. I've been playing basketball. I'm sweating, you know, clear through everything. I come in the house. It was a Tuesday evening. I come in the house, and the preacher is in our house. We've never had a preacher in our house before, okay? And so they invited me to sit down. And I'm thinking, this can't be good. I'm getting roped into something here. And I, get, I sit down, and the preacher starts telling my dad about hell. And if he doesn't accept Christ, he's going to go to hell. I fully expected my dad to tell him to go to hell any second. And I was sitting there on that seat, on the edge of my seat, excited about the drama that was about to take place. I felt it coming, you know. It didn't happen. And my dad got real humble. And my dad said, yeah, I will. And so dad said that Sunday he was going to walk the aisle and he was going to get baptized. And then all the eyes in the room turned on me. And they said, and the preacher said, what about you? And I said, no, I appreciate this. I'm not ready for this. No way. I'm a kid. I'm 14. I got too much to live for. Who wants to give their life to God, okay, and be trapped? And all week long, I just felt that just kept churning and churning and churning. On Sunday morning, when Dad walked the aisle, and I followed him, I don't know who was more surprised, my dad, my mom, or the preacher. How many times have you said no? I've said no to God. I'm this first son. You're that first son. Even if you're a believer, probably multiple times Aunt Mabel was praying for you. Uncle Hugh was praying for you. Different people shared Christ with you. Different people encouraged you. Different people supported you. How many times? We're we're in the parable. We said, I'm not going to do this. But what changed our minds? What changed that boy's mind? I think it was his love for his dad. I think the first son who said, I'm not going to do this hot, hard, next 30 days of my life, I think the boy finally realized, you know what? My dad's been breaking his back for me for 50 years. My dad's worked in this vineyard for 50 years. My dad's been providing and protecting for me. How could I leave my dad hanging? How could I not honor my dad? My dad loves me. My dad, and I think the young man realized that the love of the father is what changed his life. If you're not a Christian, I hope it's the, your love for Jesus that motivates you to say yes. Jesus, sinless. Jesus, perfect. He left the glory of heaven. He comes down here as a little baby boy. He lives these 33 years. He gets arrested. He gets flogged. He gets crucified. He spends three days in Hades. All it gets resurrected, all for you and for me. And so maybe you've said no to God 14 or 15 times in your life. I get that. I get that. But I'm hoping that today you will feel and you will see the love of your Father and the love of the Son. Now, for those of us that are on the other side of the cross, which is probably a good, a good number of us in, in this room, I still think we're in this parable. I still think every one of us every day face this parable. Every day we face the parable with our lives. Are we going to say yes to the Father? And so let me ask you a couple questions. 
Where are you saying no to your Heavenly Father right now? Where in your life have you said, you know what, I'll come to the cross, I'll come to Christ, but I'm not going to forgive him. I'm not going to forgive her. I'm not going to live an unselfish life. Get baptized? I'm not going to get baptized. I'm not going to give my money. I'm not going to serve. You want me to go invite them? to? For, where in your life today is your heavenly father saying, yes, 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 I want you to come. And you're going, ah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Well, what I want to motivate you with is not guilt, is not fear, but it's the love of the Son and the love of the Father. When I stop and realize how foolish I'm being when I say no to God, it's just foolish. When I realize that He only has my best interests in mind, when I realize that every one of His scriptures he, 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 always, he always has my best interest in mind. When, when I realize it's really pretty stubborn and stupid and foolish, isn't it, to, to say no to my Heavenly Father. And so I, I just want to ask you, where today have you said, nope, not going to forgive her, nope, not going to do it, nope. And you're going, I know he's knocking on my heart. I know it's time for me to give this up. It's just foolish. I, I, I do like science. I'm not a science nerd or geek, but I do like it. Because everything I see in science just confirms what we're doing with theology. And this is written by a scientist. Just a little short story here. And she's PhD. She's written books. Her name's Marilyn Adamson. And I just want you to listen. It's, it's real short. Can you give me one more minute? I have one more minute? Okay. She said, I was an atheist at one time. And like many atheists, the issue of people believing in God bothered me greatly. Then she said this, what is it about atheists that we spend so much time, attention, and energy refuting something that we don't believe even exists? What causes us to do that? When I was an atheist, I attributed my intentions as caring for those poor delusional people to help them realize that their hope was completely ill-founded. But to be honest, I also had another motive. As I challenged those who believed in God, I was deeply curious to see if they could convince me otherwise. Part of my quest was to become free from the question of God. If I could conclusively prove to believers that they were wrong, then the issue is off the table and I would be free to go about my life. But I didn't realize that the reason the topic of God weighed so heavily on my mind was because God was pressing the issue. And I have come to find out that God wants to be known. He created us with the intention that we would know Him. He has surrounded us with evidence of Himself And he keeps the question of his existence squarely before us. It was as if I couldn't escape thinking about the possibility of God. In fact, the day I chose to acknowledge God's existence, my prayer life began with, okay, you win. It might be the underlying reason atheists are bothered by by people believing in God 
is because God is actively pursuing them. My friend, if if you're not a believer in Christ today, he is actively pursuing you. Why wouldn't you surrender your life to him? There's only three approaches. There's rebellion, there's apathy, and there's acceptance. And for those of us that are on this side of the cross, we have this same parable, this same fork in the road every day of our lives. Will, Will I say yes to God today? Will I say yes to God tomorrow? Will I say yes to God the day after that? I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come down front. And if you would like special prayer this morning, if you'd like to give your life to Christ, imagine what your life would be like if you gave your life to Jesus today. Imagine the freedom and the pressure that would be off. Imagine today, those of you that are Christians, If where you've been saying no to God, you start saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, okay, God, yes, God. Imagine what your life would be like if you did that. Maybe God wants you to invite some of your friends on the way out. We got some of the invite cards. Maybe that's a good thing for you to do. Take some, pray about it, hand them out. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. And we want to say yes to you every day of our lives. We worship you. We praise you. Great is the Lord. Now, Jesus, if there's those in the room that maybe have resisted you or maybe have just been apathetic about you, I ask that you have a breakthrough in their lives today. And they will surrender to you. And I pray for all of us in this room that this entire week we will say yes to you. And we'll be free in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.